Good afternoon. Welcome to the Fairbank Center's Director Seminar. I am Winnie Yip, uh, Interim Director at the Fairbank Center. Um, for this spring semester, we have invited several what I call up and coming junior faculty from Harvard and the broader Boston area to share their frontier research with us. Today, I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Carrie Radigan from Amherst to speak on her work on social policy and decentralization in China. And we are equally honored to have our own colleague, Dr. Nara Dillon from the Department of Government to moderate and chair the session. Um, Nara doesn't need um, further uh, introduction. She's very well known for her research on the politics of welfare and charity in China and other developing countries. So without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Nara. And for the participants, please type your questions into the Q&A box and we'll come to that uh, when um, Carrie finishes her talk. Nara, over to you. Okay, thank you, Winnie. I'm very pleased to be able to introduce uh, Carrie Radigan for today's talk um, and uh, to tell you a little bit more about her. Um, she is an assistant professor at Amherst College, so that's how she's joined our community. And uh, before that point, she got her PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison under um, Melanie Mannion and uh, some of the other scholars there. And then since coming to Amherst, um, she's had a postdoctoral fellowship at SICE at the School for Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins for the last two years. So we're glad to have her back in the area um, and uh, here virtually. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to read an early manuscript um, of this book that she's gonna be talking about today, which is titled, let some get healthy first, how local politics shaped social policy in China. This book is being published by Cambridge University Press, and I think it's scheduled to come out this fall if the pandemic um, is uh, cooperative. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to reading the final version of it. So Carrie, feel free to, to go ahead and just to let everyone know she's going to talk for about a half an hour and then we're going to open this up to discussion and Q&A. Great. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, Nara. Um, and thank you again for reading that earlier draft and your feedback. And of course, thank you so much to Winnie Yip and the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies uh, for inviting me to give this talk. On December 8th, 2019, just before millions of Chinese would travel to celebrate Lunar New Year, doctors reported a case of unknown pneumonia in the city of Wuhan in Hubei province. Several doctors sounded the alarm through social media channels about the possibility of a new SARS-like virus. However, not only were the warnings not heeded, eight individuals, including some doctors, were chastised by local officials on national television. The first death from the novel coronavirus was recorded on January 9th, 2020, and local authorities resisted taking action until after human-to-human -human transmission had been confirmed on January 20th, 2020. The city of Wuhan was placed under lockdown three days later. By the time the lockdown was ordered, more than six weeks had passed since doctors' initial warnings of the new virus, and the window of opportunity for containment had closed. 
However, once the severity of the new virus was clear, the central government of China initiated an aggressive campaign to mitigate the effects of the pandemic. This campaign was largely, has been largely successful in maintaining low numbers of cases and deaths in China throughout 2020. Nonetheless, the pandemic has led to over 100 million cases of COVID-19 and over two and a half million deaths worldwide. Local officials in Wuhan have been judged harshly for mishandling the initial warnings of the novel coronavirus. But unfortunately, their behavior and the tragic outcome in Wuhan should not have been surprising. In fact, the response to the novel coronavirus highlighted structural features, structural features of the Chinese political system that are problematic for good governance. The Chinese political system is hierarchical with upward accountability. By this, I mean that local officials are evaluated by higher levels of government. They are not elected by their constituencies as in a democracy. This hierarchical Leninist party state disincentivizes local officials from reporting problems to higher levels of government. And ideological commitment is increasingly valued over expertise. Had local officials incorrectly sounded the alarm in the weeks leading up to Lunar New Year celebrations, they would have disrupted holiday plans and economic activity, and the consequences would have been severe. But what if the novel coronavirus had first been discovered in a city where local officials valued expertise over ideology? Where officials frequently use their professional judgment to make difficult decisions on the ground? where local officials were accustomed to a certain degree of autonomy in decision-making. Of course, we can never know whether these counterfactuals would have changed the outcome in terms of either the local or global spread of the virus. But perhaps if doctors had been reporting the new virus to local officials who valued expertise over politics, the party state may have reacted more quickly and saved lives. The importance of local government has never been more clear. When doing research for my forthcoming book, I conducted interviews with local officials on health policy in rural China from 2009 to 2012. And I discovered acute differences in how policies are interpreted and implemented. I consistently asked county officials for seemingly innocuous textbook information about local health policy, things like, so how much would a farmer in this program be reimbursed if they had some health expenses? How much would a farmer have to pay or a villager have to pay for uh, annual premiums? These were technical questions that were not politically sensitive in the 2000s. In one province, officials would readily supply the information, proudly declaring that it was publicly available, often on their website, and it usually was. In another province, Officials would provide basic information, but if I pressed them for more detail, they would prevaricate, saying things uh, like or they would say that they would send me the specifics via email, and they never did. And in a third province, officials would claim that the same information that I was asking was secret or classified, and they would refuse to divulge anything of substance and simply regurgitate some central government rhetoric. So I observed variation, not only in how forthcoming local officials were, 
um, but also in how many policies and practices were implemented. These conversations led me to wonder, how is it possible that in a hierarchical party state, local officials could be behaving so differently? In today's talk, I will draw on my research on health policy in China during the Hu Jintao government to show that Chinese provinces have developed distinct styles of governing. And these governing styles then impact how local officials implement policies on the ground. My first slide shows a depiction of my argument. My main argument is that provinces that opened their economies to the global market earlier developed a more pragmatic approach to governing, while those that opened up later retained a more paternalist approach to governing. These distinct approaches to governing subsequently shaped social policy, both in terms of social policy priorities and how social policy was implemented on the ground. The arguments in the book and in this talk pertain mainly to the Hu Jintao years from 2002 to 2012, when decentralization was at its height. Although there are implications for today, which I will allude to briefly in the conclusion. Today, I'll discuss each of these three components of the argument. Uneven economic reforms and decentralization, paternalist and pragmatist policy styles, and the implications for social policy. When I say social policy, I'm referring to laws, regulations, and programs that the Chinese party state has adopted um, to address problems related to health, education, poverty, and housing. So first I'll discuss uneven economic reforms and decentralization. I've already told you that China has a hierarchical political system where local officials are held accountable by higher levels of government. It would be reasonable for you to conclude that local officials across China respond to the system in similar ways, since they face similar incentives and constraints. So how did a hierarchical party state with a strong central government end up with such different approaches to governing on the ground? To understand how we got here, we need to briefly visit the early economic reform era. In the first wave of economic reforms, the central government selectively granted some coastal localities access to the global economy and allowed them to experiment with market, um, market economics. Here are two pictures of Yumin village in Shenzhen in Guangdong province. The top two black and white pictures are from the 1980s and the bottom two pictures are from 2018. Due to its proximity to Hong Kong, Shenzhen was chosen as a special economic zone in 1980. This allowed the city to experiment with market capitalism and adopt policies that would attract foreign investment. Much research has examined the economic reform process, but I'm going to focus on the implications of this for governing style. These economic reforms had political implications and scholars have discussed some of these elsewhere as well. Foreign firms wanted a predictable business environment where they could expect reliable contracts and courts that would uphold business agreements. As a result, 
Provinces that opened their economies earlier and gained exposure to foreign markets developed a pragmatic style of governing. Meanwhile, provinces that were not chosen for these early opportunities retained a more paternalist style of governing. By the early 1990s, China's economic reforms had been underway for a decade, about a decade. The economy was booming, but the central government was not reaping the benefits. On the left side, on the left-hand side, we can see the proportion of tax revenue that local government retained compared to the proportion of tax revenue that the central government retained over time. In the early 1980s and early 1990s, you can see that local government was able to hold on to a majority of the tax revenue. However, in 1994, the central government mandated that about half of all tax, re tax revenue should be sent to the central government, allowing local government to retain a much smaller proportion than before. As a result, from 1994 onward, local government faced new budget constraints. Meanwhile, looking at the figure on the right, local government's responsibilities greatly expanded in this same time period. Starting in the 1980s, local government was expected to fund most policies, programs, services, and, and even infrastructure in some cases. Over the course of the economic reform period, the central government reduced its share of total expenditures, forcing local government to bear the burden of paying for many policies and programs, including most social policies, such as education, healthcare, policy alleviation, and affordable housing. Eventually, the central government began to send fiscal transfers to poorer provinces and would sometimes earmark these funds for specific policies as healthcare. And we'll see this later in the talk. Over the course of the 1990s and 2000s, the center devolved fiscal responsibility for social policy to local government. But what did this look like from the perspective of policy implementation? This is a simplified depiction. It's simplified because China actually has five levels of government, but this is a simplified depiction of decentralized policy implementation in China in the 2000s. The central government would set broad policy priorities, goals, strategies, and sometimes even specific targets for lower levels to um, seek to reach. The province then determined how central policy was to be interpreted and implemented. The province could choose to standardize the policy uh, across its, its own province, or the province could delegate implementation and sometimes uh, funding to lower levels of government, such as the county, for example. Lower levels of government had to then either, um, depending on the path chosen by the province, lower levels of government either needed to follow, see the, follow the guidelines set by the province or design the specifics themselves. Um, in many cases, many uh, specifics of, of implementation would be left unsaid by the province or even central government. So counties or localities may need to uh, keep in mind any particular targets that the province or center have set, but they had a substantial amount of leeway in determining the specifics of many social policies. 
lower levels of government. So in this simplified depiction, I refer to the locality. But these lower levels of government within the province could include the prefecture, the county, township, or in urban areas, the city or district, depending on um, the, the policy in question. These differences in policy implementation are particularly salient in the Chinese context, since one's official place of residence determines access to social policy benefits according due to the hukou system. In the context of decentralized policy implementation and fiscal constraints, provinces developed distinct approaches to governing, which I refer to as policy styles, building on the research of Sebastian Hallman, Elizabeth Perry, and others. But what did these policy styles look like? What are their main characteristics and how do they manifest themselves in policy implementation? Wealthier provinces that opened up earlier to the global economy tended to have a pragmatist policy style. Therefore, they received relatively little central government funding for most social policies. Many social policies in pragmatist provinces are essentially unfunded mandates. However, these provinces have relatively large budgets and can fund the, the, these policies on their own. Um, but they're also more likely to further devolve responsibility for social policy funding and implementation to lower levels of government, such as the city or county. Luckily, Due to the legacy of early economic reforms and higher levels of foreign investment, these provinces typically have a relatively have relatively professionalized local officials, and these folks can take on policy implementation with relative competence. These provinces are somewhat more attentive to transparency and corruption, and I'm talking about even prior to C's now infamous anti-corruption campaign. So we're talking about the early 2000s again. In policy implementation, pragmatist provinces are more likely to include non-state actors, again, in the two early 2000s, were more likely to include non-state actors, um, such as NGOs or businesses, and innovate um, in terms of policy. These provinces often focus on using, using social policy to foster human capital and promote economic growth by prioritizing policies like education and sometimes healthcare. If you have a healthy and educated workforce, your economy is more likely to grow. By contrast, paternalist provinces have much smaller budgets and are reliant on fiscal transfers from the central government to fund social policy. These provinces take a top-down approach to governing, where the province typically establishes provincial-wide um, standards and localities merely need to put in place the rules that have been set by, the provin by provincial leadership. In part due to this top-down approach, local officials in paternalist provinces are less likely to innovate and they're less likely to collaborate with non-state actors, such as NGOs or businesses. Paternalist provinces tend to prioritize social policy that promotes social stability. To this end, uh, paternalist provinces prioritize targeted policies, such as poverty alleviation and affordable housing, where uh, the province can direct resources at the people who are most likely to have 
um, economic grievances. In the book, I use provincial statistics to create an index to capture pragmatism and paternalism. I use this index to categorize the provinces as either having a predominantly pragmatist or paternalist or mixed policy style. In today's talk, I focus on the contrast between pragmatism and paternalism. This map shows the dominant policy style tendency of provinces using data from the Hujintao years. Now, again, these are tendencies. Um, some degree of paternalism and um, pragmatism is going to exist in many places. Um, but this gives you a sense of where uh, provincial leadership tends toward one or the other policy style or the mixed policy style. In general, the coast has more pragmatist tendencies, while the interior is more paternalist, although there are um, a couple of exceptions to this. In the book, I also discuss provinces that exhibit both tendencies and categorize them as mixed. So of course, an index such as this has some limitations and it's difficult to uh, uh, quantify uh, concepts such as paternalism or pragmatism, but I offer this as a framework for understanding the different approaches to governing that are prevalent to different degrees in different parts of China. While previous research on decentralization and the Chinese welfare state has showed the importance of decentralization, uh, few scholars examine how social policy implementation varies across Chinese provinces. In the book, I use provincial social policy spending to show that pragmatism is associated with prioritizing education and health, while paternalism is associated with targeting poverty alleviation and affordable housing. And these associations are uh, observable even when controlling for the wealth and needs within the province. So I'm not dismissing wealth and needs as important factors, but I argue that governing styles have diverged and are palpable um, when looking at social policy implementation. So different approaches to governing impact social policy beyond budget allocations. My qualitative research shows how policy implementation differs across social policy, uh, across provinces. So how do policy styles impact social policy? Prior to 2003, most rural residents had no health insurance and paid their medical expenses out of pocket. As a result, up to a quarter of Chinese, this is actually both urban and rural, would forego medical treatment, this is about in the late 1990s, because of the cost. So they were foregoing medical treatment because of exorbitant cost and many rural residents became impoverished due to the cost of healthcare. The goal of the new cooperative medical system was to reduce the burden specifically of catastrophic medical expenses for, and for rural residents. The NCMS was a risk pooling, state subsidized health insurance program available to rural residents. Rural residents paid small premiums but most of the cost was borne by the government. The NCMS began in pilot programs in 2003. Although the NCMS was encouraged by the central government in 2003, provinces implemented the policy very differently for quite a few years. 
We can observe the dynamics of decentralized policy implementation by looking at the NCMS. The central government set a goal of expanding uh, insurance coverage to rural China. The main policy associated with this goal was the new cooperative medical system, or NCMS. The central government provided earmarked fiscal transfers to support this policy, but only to low-income provinces. Therefore, two different approaches to implementing this policy emerged. Paternalist provinces who were receiving the fiscal transfers um, uh, in, uh, in paternalist provinces who where they received the fiscal transfers, the province would standardize reimbursement rates and other details of the policy across the province. Uh, counties and levels of government within the province, in this case, mainly counties, would follow the guidelines set by the province and implement the policy as directed. By contrast, pragmatist provinces did not receive central transfers. In pragmatist provinces, the provincial government contributed a significant amount of funding toward the NCMS, but delegated to the county government to determine the details of the policy and implement it as the county saw fit. So how did rural, how did rural counties take on a new policy such as the NCMS? As part of the first wave of counties to adopt the policy, officials in Jiangsu, uh, where I did some of my research, could they couldn't draw on past experiences from other provinces. They had to improvise. County officials realized that they would need additional expertise and that they might benefit by learning from the experiences of others in the region who were also trying to figure out this new policy. To figure this out, several county officials started regular meetings to discuss the policy and to decide on appropriate reimbursement levels and other details that had not been determined by the province or the central government. In my field work, I spoke to county officials who were extremely proactive in implementing the NCMS. County officials from six rural counties and one urban district set up regular meetings and decided to standardize their rural health insurance program among this group. They met monthly within the prefecture and disseminated information among themselves to create a uniform program. They also independently acquired new training and skills, and they hired in-house professionals in accounting and actuarial sciences to help them navigate this new policy. And they were very, uh, uh, folks that I interviewed were really proud of the work that they had done. It's important to note that this work was initiated by local actors, local officials, rather than provincial or central government. These photographs are from two of the localities in Jiangsu in 2009. Although Jiangsu is a relatively wealthy province, these particular localities are not the wealthiest, not among the wealthiest in the province. Nonetheless, local officials were highly professionalized and sought to implement the NCMS to the best of their abilities. By contrast, other provinces in the paternalist group established provincial level guidelines to immediately standardize the new policies, the NCMS's implementation. Local officials in paternalist provinces merely followed provincial directives, perhaps losing an opportunity to shape policy and upgrade their professional skills. A key takeaway of this story is that local officials saw their work very differently in different places and in different contexts. In Jiangsu, 
Local officials saw themselves as designing policy, creating it. They saw themselves as policy makers, whereas their counterparts in Hunan and other uh, paternalist provinces were merely following orders. We can see the differences in how the central government has allocated fiscal transfers for the NCMS across provinces. While the center provided half or nearly half of the funding for the NCMS in paternalist provinces, such as Hunan and Gansu, Jiangsu received almost no funding for the NCMS. Therefore, provincial officials in Jiangsu preferred to delegate more of the responsibility for funding to the county. So we can see in Jiangsu, um, most counties were contributing about 22% of the budget for NCMS, whereas in poorer provinces, the county was only contributing about six or 7%. Um, Jiangsu also allowed counties to take the lead in figuring out the details of this policy. There were also implications for social policies, spending and reimbursement. The bar chart on the left makes a similar point about healthcare funding as the, as the previous graph, um, being about healthcare funding being more decentralized in Jiangsu, but from a slightly different perspective. So even at the village level, even villagers in Jiangsu are contributing, contributing much, much more to healthcare for the village than their counterparts in Hubei and Yunnan in two other, in two paternalist provinces. Because villages in Jiangsu are relatively wealthy, their budgets are substantially higher than their counterparts in Hubei and Yunnan. Going back to the NCMS, because Jiangsu is more decentralized, there was much more variability in how the NCMS was implemented, even for quite a few years after the first year of adoption. The table on the right shows reimbursement levels for inpatient and outpatient procedures in several counties in Jiangsu and Hunan. Um, these data are from interviews that I conducted and uh, the officials in Hunan um, suggested that the, I would receive similar uh, data from other counties outside of, of the areas that I, that I visited. Um, so I have no reason to believe that these counties are particular outliers. A patient in Jiangsu that received inpatient treatment could have been reimbursed 55% of the cost or up to 80% of the cost, depending on whether they lived in County J or County I. A patient receiving outpatient treatment could have been reimbursed 20% of the cost or 55% of the cost, depending on whether they lived in County K or County H. But by contrast, counties in Hunan followed pro provincial guidelines and more or less standardized their reimbursement rates across the province um, nearly um, immediately upon the uh, adoption of the policy. So we can see the implications for, um, of decentralization in different ways with social policy. Uneven economic reform coupled with fiscal changes and decentralization has led to distinct governing styles in Chinese provinces. These divergent provincial policy styles have had a direct impact on social policy implementation in China, particularly during the early 2000s. First, disparate provinces have prioritized different aspects of social policy through budget allocation. Second, in pragmatist provinces, local officials became policymakers as they were tasked with making decisions about how policies would be implemented on the ground, 
especially during the early stages of a new policy. The NCMS many years later was subsequently standardized and merged with, some, with an urban program. Meanwhile, local officials in paternalist provinces were directed to implement guidelines established by the provincial government from the beginning, perhaps losing out on opportunities for them to improve their own professionalization. Provinces diverged in how they implemented what were ostensibly the same policies. As I discuss in greater detail in the book, pragmatist provinces were more likely to involve local officials um, also, and also involve private enterprise and NGOs when they're designing the specifics of social policy. As a result, these provinces often exhibited substantial inequality within the province in terms of social policy provision, particularly in the early stages of a new policy. For example, we saw how rural health insurance benefits varied significantly um, within uh, Jiangsu. Um, sometimes, pragmatist provinces even ignored central directives in favor of their local interests. For example, coastal provinces dragged their feet on affordable housing, affordable housing policy, despite a great need for these programs in those regions. Those provinces did eventually come around uh, around 2010 when the central government um, uh, expected a little more compliance with affordable housing efforts. By contrast, paternalist provinces such as Hunan standardized programs from their inception. Indeed, because paternalist provinces often rely on earmarked fiscal transfers from the central government, they were much more constrained in their policy choices. Paternalist provinces were more likely to take a top-down approach to implementation and closely follow central and provincial guidelines with very little innovation or participation from non-state actors. Now, local officials are often the first point of contact for local residents when they're interacting with the state. However, local officials are humans who are operating in very different contexts across the country. While some are highly professionalized and see themselves as policymakers, others are not afforded the respect or discretion to develop professional skills. As a result, the experiences of residents seeking help from local officials will vary dramatically across and sometimes even within provinces. In recent years, Xi Jinping has reduced decentralization in policy implementation. Nonetheless, the habits and practices of local officials are likely to persist, at least to some degree. Moreover, if the party state prioritizes political loyalty over expertise, good governance will be difficult to attain. So I'll end here and I'd like to open it up for questions. Thank you, Carrie, for a very interesting talk. And I'm gonna start off with a question or two and then um, draw in others, um, uh, starting with uh, Winnie and uh, our members of our audience. So I want to start off asking you to say a little bit more about the origin of these different policy styles. Um, and you talked about the timing <laughs> of when these um, provinces began their economic reforms. Um, and so I was wondering if you could say more about what was going on in these two different periods that you highlight, and also the interaction between the timing and the fiscal constraints that you talk about. Um, 
And then I'm also interested if you can say more about these policy styles in the Xi Jinping era, where he has clearly set out this agenda <laughs> of reining in the decentralization um, of the Chinese uh, political system and trying to give the center more control. Um, and uh, so how far this has pushed against these policy styles or maybe one or the other. So if you could start off there, I'd appreciate it. Sure, thank you so much for your questions. Um, so regarding the source of policy styles, I know I went through everything um, fairly quickly. Um, I build on other uh, research that has shown the some of the institutional and political impacts of having foreign investment in, um, in a particular region in the economic, uh, in the early economic uh, reform period. So essentially I argue that these provinces that were allowed to open up earlier, um, they were more exposed to uh, certainly market capitalism and foreign firms. And foreign firms would often lobby for certain practices to be put in place. Um, they might uh, request uh, infrastructure to be put in place. They might also uh, hope for clear contracts, right? And uh, enforcement of contracts. And so through this interaction with foreign firms and entrepreneurs, um, I argue that that's where, that, that these interactions also um, impacted local government and local government developed a different, uh, different ways of doing their own business, doing the business of government, different ways of working and different habits and practices. And so they were more, um, more entrep entrepreneurial, more innovative. Certainly they also had more resources and that's part of the story as well. And they were also more accustomed to um, thinking about having consistent rules and regulations, um, at least um, pertaining to contracts. In the early 2000s in these provinces, we also saw somewhat more um, open access to resources like the internet. Um, so uh, internet may be somewhat less regulated in these uh, pragmatist provinces as in contrast to um, further inland where it would be more restricted. Um, and I suggest that this is also likely in part due to the pressure of um, business and foreign firms. And so um, all of that, all of those points kind of contributed to a different, um, a divergent policy, policy style. Um, and then in terms of the role of fiscal transfers, so the central government does, uh, did, did acknowledge that poor, uh, that lower income provinces need support in certain areas. And so started to do, um, initiate fiscal transfers. And I focus on fiscal transfers for social policy, there are transfers for other issues, and that's sort of a, um, a bigger, um, a bigger conversation, but at least for social policy, um, the center uh, took what appears to be a somewhat progressive approach in terms of identifying um, uh, counties that could be labeled as poor counties or provinces that needed additional support in implementing particular policies. Um, on the one hand, that uh, in theory could reduce um, some inequality, but I propose that that has some unintended consequences as well. So by um, 
providing these funds, which certainly are needed funds, um, by providing these funds, but having the ear, earmarked um, funds, that constrains the province and local, local actors. And so they also are less likely to engage in the sort of more innovative policymaking that we see more on the coast. And they sort of follow the letter of the law and follow the rules handed down um, by the center and the province. Um, and so I think uh, it has a sort of unintended consequence of shaping local um, actors behavior. And to your second um, question, um, I haven't done a systematic study of uh, local policy variation, um, but from in, in, uh, in the Xi Jinping era is so let's say in the last um, 10 years or so, um, but uh, anecdotally, I would say that there has certainly been a decrease in local government innovation. Some recent research by Jessica Teets and others has found uh, that local officials, some local officials um, also in these, um, in a province that I would consider to be more pragmatist. So like in Zhejiang and places like this on the coast, they uh, sometimes uh, persist in innovating. And I think that that would be an interesting research question for folks to take up. Who are those local officials that are persisting um, in innovating even under these difficult um, circumstances? Uh, difficult from a decentralization perspective. Um, but yes, I would expect to see uh, less uh, variation on the ground. Um, in fact, the NCMS and some other policies have been standardized at the national level um, over the past several years. Um, and certainly there's been a, a push towards party discipline. Um, that said, I think another implication of my argument is that it may be somewhat more, is that uh, this push towards re-centralization of power may be somewhat more um, difficult in a province where local officials are used to having some degree of autonomy. Uh, they may resist or try to drag their feet on recentralization efforts um, if they were um, enjoying the autonomy that they previously had in the 2000s. Um, so that could be sort of a source of, of contention if recentralization um, continues um, apace. Great. One quick follow-up, since I see that Meg Rithmeyer has uh, asked some questions along the same line that I started here. Um, and uh, so she's also interested in this idea that these policy styles have been maintained over um, these decades mm -hmm. and uh, wants you to say a little bit more um, about what has helped sustain them and whether you think there are different cultures of governance that are forming um, in these different provinces in China. Yeah, I think that's a good, um, that's, a, that's a great question. Thanks um, both Nara and Meg for that question. Um, yes, I think that's right. I think there's a certain degree of path dependency and a certain degree of, uh, of local officials um, seeing their role in a particular way, either as like innovative policymakers or as folks who are implementing rules that have been given to them. And so um, once you have that uh, type of culture in a particular workplace, uh, younger folks are gonna come in and it's, it's it, uh, you know, it, it, I'm certainly not gonna say that it's permanent, but it, that type of thing can be slow to change. Um, uh, and so uh, I do think that there's, there's some degree of stickiness, although I certainly, you know, I think that again, the data I collected and 
um, the arguments that I make are most uh, resonate the most with the early 2000s, but I think that in these practices, there's some degree of stickiness. And where we see um, innovation, uh, for example, the practice of policy innovation these days, again, it tends to be in these same coastal provinces, like the, the same sort of usual suspects as in the 2000s. Um, I also think that um, in paternalist provinces, uh, some of the kind of quanti quantitative measures that I look at are meant to capture some degree of political conservatism. So I think that um, you may have folks in paternalist provinces who are nervous um, to uh, overstep their bounds um, and in that way um, maintain this type of um, approach to governing. Winnie, do you wanna jump so, in here? Sure. Um, thank you very much, Carrie, for my very insightful presentation. Um, certainly, um, health policy, rural health policy, and NCMS is um, a subject area very dear to my heart. Um, during the time um, around the 2000s, uh, in fact, a lot of our work is doing social experiment. Mm -hmm. It means that what we do is to take the national government's policy, including NCMS, which laid out clear directions, broad directions and broad parameters, and leave it very much to the local government to design um, the, the, the exact policy that would be um, suitable for the local situation. Mm -hmm. And when we did that work, um, we actually um, consulted the central government for advice on where should we target our effort in. Now, we always want to work in the poor areas um, because we thought that's how we can help people. But um, the government, the central government's advice to us is also go to the West. And here's their argument. The argument is that, you know, all provincial leader, they want to compete, right? I mean, the Chinese mm -hmm. governance is to let the local government compete. Mm -hmm. And through so this competition, then they advance and so the Western region leaders are quite convinced that there's no there's no chance for them to win and compete right. with the Eastern region in terms mm -hmm. of economic growth. So mm -hmm. their hope is to compete on the social sector. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm just wondering how this alternative hypothesis work with what you have been thinking about. Um, and in, in other words, is it possible that this pragmatism and also entrepreneur new thinking can differentiate between economic policy and social policy in that sense? Um, my second question, which is um, similar to Nara's second question is, there's no question in the last two, three years the scoop for local innovation has been tightened. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that China is moving to a new form of innovation that is encouraging innovation at the just very early stage? And once they find one or two model that the national government find it palatable, they sort of stop the innovation and become very 
central top-down scaling up of that same identical model. Um, and partly for pragmatic reasons, because um, of the high variation across the different local condition, the ability to innovate, sometimes they're not just making progress. And at least in health, we were told that we're done, we're done with innovation. This is about scaling up. <laughs> so, so I'm just curious um, how you think about these um, alternatives. Yeah, that's a great, those are both great questions. Thank you so much. I think I'll do, I'll take your second question first and then I'll go back to your first question. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think that part of it is uh, part of the tightening in local innovation, as you put it, um, is due to uh, CCP leadership and C's leadership preferences, but it's also perhaps sort of a natural stage of evolution, um, especially in some social policy areas. I think that's right, right? In the 1990s, healthcare had different um, problems to contend with, right? So, um, yeah, uh, uh, Coming, uh, non-coming way, right? So, like, healthcare was difficult and expensive to um, access, um, and that you know, there's there's still many existing problems, but it has been alleviated to some extent. Um, and so, I think um, the hypothesis that perhaps the new stage or the new um, way of thinking about innovation is to allow some early stage innovation, but scale up more quickly. I think that um, is is very likely to be uh, something that we'll see in the, in the coming years. Um, to your first question, as though I'm really glad that you brought up this issue, I think that's exactly right that um, Western provinces, uh, they don't see, you know, there's, there's no hope um, in uh, competing with uh, coastal provinces in terms of economic growth. And so they, uh, in some cases, want to try to excel in other areas. And it's true, you do see examples of um, uh, uh, innovation and sort of not just innovation, but also like very um, proactive uh, local government or provincial government um, where the province uh, or the local officials are exceeding um, the standards set by the province or the center. Um, and you can you see that in some of those um, poorer provinces. So I think that certainly happens. That said, um, when I looked at how different types of social policy were implemented um, in many of those Western, as, as I would categorize them sort of more paternalist provinces, even when the province was attempting to be very proactive in a particular social policy, they often did so in a very top-down fashion. So uh, for example, there um, is a, a, a poverty alleviation policy, policy that matches local government, uh, local um, localities, uh, poor localities could be like a, like a village um, or even a township with um, other either other localities and other places that have expertise in poverty alleviation or sometimes other organizations or institutions within the government that can assist. And so there's a sort of matching pro uh, uh, program. And we saw this in response to the pandemic as well, but this you know, pre predated the pandemic. Um, and the idea of helping um, these uh, low-income areas alleviate poverty 
um, it you know could potentially be very effective. But the way that it's done in some of these provinces is uh, sort of very, very top down, very, um, uh, you know, constant monitoring, constant checking um, that the target area is complying with the recommendations um, and more micromanaging than is even required by the overall program. Um, so I think I agree with you that um, in many cases, these Western areas are trying to um, ex excel in different areas, um, but I think often they do it in a really um, different manner. They're not uh, saying, oh, let's, um, in some cases in the 2000s, NGOs were a big part of the stories, but um, I think there's, you know, somewhat less likely to kind of partner with an NGO or partner with um, um, a, a private entrepreneur who can help them along this way. It tends to be more top down, more heavy handed um, and much more micromanaged. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, Carrie, we're getting a lot of questions, which is great. Um, and uh, we've gotten quite a few questions asking you to say a little bit more about the antidote you started out with since we've all been thinking about it quite a bit and to talk about the connection between these policy styles and what happened in Wuhan. Um, and, uh, and whether you think there will be a change um, to these policy styles coming out of the lessons learned um, from the failure to contain um, the coronavirus early on in Wuhan. And, uh, and just uh, thinking that many of the healthcare reforms that came out of the SARS crisis um, and which were an attempt to prevent SARS from ever happening again. <laughs> um, that was a response to uh, a disease that emerged in Guangdong in one of your pragmatic um, provinces. And now we have this example of one that's emerged in a paternalist province. So I wonder if you think there's gonna be some sort of correction to the paternalist policy style here. Yeah, so first to bring it back to those early days in Wuhan. Um, so uh, I, I didn't explicitly lay out um, the research that I did for the book. You can see the book for the details, but I did um, semi-structured interviews in three provinces. And I also did a survey in um, uh, three provinces and there was overlap in Jiangsu. Um, so uh, the survey, um, uh, Hubei province was included in our survey. Um, I don't. I don't want to speak to the the you know particular individuals um, who reacted uh, in those early days of the pandemic, but I think that this framework helps people think about the different constraints that local officials are facing, um, and that in a place like Wuhan, it's likely that those folks were not used to a lot of discretion. It's likely that they were used to um, quite a bit of micromanaging. And they were also, because we're talking about um, the Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping era as well, um, they were also probably uh, feeling a lot of pressure to demonstrate um, their ideological correctness. Um, and I think that those factors contributed to the, their initial response. Is it likely to change? Um, one would hope. Um, I'd like that you brought up the example of SARS because on the one hand, uh, SARS can be could be seen as a sort of catalytic event in uh, precipitating healthcare reform, and a lot of reforms were taken post SARS. 
Um, and a lot of uh, 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 disease reporting and public health um, areas were strengthened. But they clearly were not strengthened sufficiently because a lot of similar missteps happened with the novel coronavirus as had happened with SARS. Um, and I think the issue is one, you know, one of the issues is that the fundamental structure facing local officials in Wuhan had not changed, even though the public health officials may have somewhat more resources than they used to have. Um, and there were, uh, you know, um, computer systems in place for reporting. If the officials don't use those systems, then they're not going to be effective um, in dealing with this type of um, with this type of situation. The other piece that's a, a little bit tangential that I deal with in the book, but a little bit tangential to what I've talked about so far, is that um, provinces that are sort of uh, middle income, they often and uh, are not eligible for as many uh, fiscal transfers from the central government, uh, provinces like Hubei that are more middle income. Um, they're not eligible for fiscal transfers. And at the same time, they're not generating as much of their own uh, revenue as, uh, as a wealthy province. So those, in some cases, those provinces actually have the smallest budgets for so, some areas of social policy. Um, so we know, for example, that uh, Wuhan would have had difficulty with just a regular cold and flu season. Their hospital, their hospital system would have had difficulty with a regular cold and flu season. So they were already kind of at a disadvantage. Um, so that coupled with the response of local officials and um, the, the increasing emphasis on ideology over expertise, I think, um, exacerbated the situation. Um, I think the main way for it to change would be for leadership to signal that, um, that uh, expertise is, is more important than politics and ideology. Winnie? I'm just curious um, whether we already, we have the firm evidence that it is the local government not reporting or whether some of them actually has been reported, not disseminated to the public, but reported to the central government, but were told to hold it. I, I do think those facts are important mm -hmm. to confirm before one can take the interpretation on governance further. Um, I, I still, I think it is still unraveling on that bit. <laughs> I think that's exactly right, right? We received some reports, um, was that a few months, maybe two or three months ago, right? Reports that the central government had information earlier than we thought, right? Yeah. So I think you're right. The timing is not trivial. Um, and uh, I mean, as far as I know, I've still been operating with the story that local government, uh, that local officials were um, suppressing and uh, 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 whistleblowers in the very early days, but you're right, the central government held on to it as well. Um, and so I think that's, that's an important part of the story and we'll see, hopefully we'll get more details eventually. Thank you. Winnie, are we supposed to end at 1.30? Yes, yes. Okay, well, we have received many, many, many more questions than we can fit in <laughs> last minute. So I'm gonna encourage if, everyone else. To... If Nara and Carrie is willing to stay for another five minutes, we can of, of course do that, yeah. It's fine with me. Okay, but in the meantime, I'm gonna encourage people um, to contact um, uh, Carrie directly uh, by email. 
and uh, pass on these questions because, uh, you know, you clearly generated a lot of interest and a lot of questions. <laughs> and um, there's no way we could possibly get to all of these. Um, and uh, I assume her email is on our website. Wendy? Yeah, it's, it's on the Amherst College website. Great, great. Um, so should we just keep going? Sure, you want to take another? Yes, please. Okay, well, one other common theme in a lot of these questions here is the role of leadership um, and how much leaders can do to change these policy styles one way or another. And a whole set of questions about the role of central leaders, which we have talked about a little bit, but a lot of questions that we didn't talk about is about provincial leadership mm -hmm. and the fact that the provincial leadership changes so frequently and regularly and whether that has an impact on these policy styles or not. That's right. I think that the um, so I think that central leadership absolutely plays a role, right? So um, looking at I didn't I didn't discuss uh, Hu Jintao's leadership uh, explicitly, but who really uh, from from what we can tell really valued collective decision making um, and emphasized decentralization and. Um, in many, many policies that the central government uh, put forward during that time, there was explicit language about localities tailoring the policy to local conditions. That was very explicitly encouraged, um, which could partly be sort of, you know, a, a stage of evolution, um, but certainly who was um, encouraging that approach to thinking about policy. Um, in terms of, uh, it, it, by contrast, C is not. <laughs> so you can see the impact. There's certainly an impact of central leadership. In terms of pro provincial leadership, I think that um, because provincial leaders, uh, certainly provincial leaders have an impact, but because provincial leaders uh, um, are often transferred and move through the system um, somewhat more quickly, than um, say central leaders in some cases, um, they are uh, less likely to make a dramatic change. And I think that provincial leaders are often seeking um, to, uh, to excel and succeed within the context of their position. So this actually relates, I think, to the point that Winnie brought up earlier. So if, if you're appointed to the head uh, um, to lead a very wealthy province, then you're going to be continuing to focus on the strengths of that province. By contrast, if you're, uh, um, if you're leading a province that has a high, very high rate of poverty, you're going to try to seek to ameliorate that problem. And so then that's an area where as a provincial leader, you can shine. Um, and I think, again, you know, I think what I've seen is that provincial leaders that are saddled with um, the, the challenge of, say, poverty alleviation, they tend to do it in a more, um, in a more top-down manner rather than saying, let's just experiment and see what happens, which is perhaps understandable. Um, but I think that they very much respond to their, their, the context of the province, both the economic and political context of the province. Do we have time for one more? Okay, one more, last question. We've also got a lot of questions about, um, you know, how you've portrayed uh, how much China's uh, decentralization um, has changed over time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and questions, so do you think the Hu Jintao 
Hu Jintao era um, was sort of the high point of decentralization um, in the post Mao period, or or not, and why? Um, thus far, I, I I think that that's fair. I mean, if you look at um, Christine Wong's research, for example, um, she shows very convincingly that local governments were uh, responsible for about 80% of expenditures. Um, and that's not just social policy, that's more broadly speaking. So I think that uh, to, you know, up, up through 2021, um, without venturing into predictions, I think that thus far, the uh, uh, sort of high point of decentralization has been those um, early 2000s. Again, the center was, the center and provinces were often explicitly saying, let's, um, you know, go ahead and tailor this to local conditions. This should follow lo con local conditions. Um, the center was also actively um, encouraging provinces to choose areas for pilot projects. Um, interestingly, I had also heard that uh, from a couple of different sources that uh, pilot localities, uh, the, the process to choose a locality for pilot projects was often to choose a locality where they thought the pilot project might, su might succeed. So that's not um, perhaps what you would do in a scientific study, um, but there was certainly this like overall impetus and encouragement of pilot projects and exper experimentation um, to the point that the, the pilot projects were situated in places where it was likely to have a good, have a positive effect and um, go off um, positively. Um, so for now, certainly um, that was the high point of decentralization. Um, perhaps we'll see sort of an ebb and flow in this area, uh, but certainly C has moved towards a more centralized um, approach to governing from the central all the way down, um, even uh, to the lowest levels of government. Great. Well, thank you for going on longer than we had planned. Um, very interesting. And I'm really looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure everyone here in the audience is as well. Um, Winnie, do you want to say? Great. Thank words? you both, Carrie and Nara. Um, likewise, I look forward to reading your book. And, uh, and uh, thank you for coming to share your work and given the questions and you see how much uh, interest you have generated. And like Nara said, all of you, please feel free to write to Carrie um, to further the conversation. So thank you very much for coming to today's seminar. And um, until next time, take Thank care. you so much for having Bye. me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you both of you, seriously. Thank you, Nara. Thank, thank you. you.